Church family, how are you all doing this morning? Good, good. Whether uh, you've come to Door Creek a lot of times or this is your first time, we're so thrilled and glad to have you with us this weekend. Well, my name is Tyler, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here on staff at Door Creek. And specifically in my role here, I get to hang out and minister to our amazing high school students right here at our Sprecher Road campus. And let me tell you, I consider it to be nothing more than God's grace and a privilege to be able to do life with our students on a weekly basis. And let me just tell you a couple of things that I'm actually really excited about that we have done, but are uh, going to be, do, be doing this uh, next couple of weeks throughout the summer. Firstly, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we did this thing called Color Wars in which over 100 students came and we used over 35 gallons of tempera paint and over 250 bags of temper powder, and we all threw it at each other in the name of Jesus for fun and to build community. And let me tell you, I was still getting green paint on my, ear, my ears after my wife came back a week, a week later. Uh, another thing that I absolutely love when it comes to working with students is that God gives me a front row seat to see how he's working in their lives. And so one of the things I absolutely love about uh, my 10 years of, almost 10 years of youth ministry is being able to sit around a table with students as they're opening their hearts up to God, as God's word is opened up to them. And that's something that I just absolutely love that we do here at Door Creek with our students. And one thing that I'm really excited about, and this is really hard for me to think about and imagine, is that in almost three weeks, I'm gonna be joining a team of 20 other people from our high school ministry, and we're gonna be headed to La Sabra, Honduras. And while there, we're gonna have the opportunity to build homes for families in need, um, but also we're gonna get to hang out with, with kids in the after-school program. And come, some of the adults who are going on this trip with us are also nurses, so they're gonna be able to work at different medical uh, clinics in that surrounding area. And as a team, um, the students on it and the leaders alike, we've all been working really, really hard to raise funds. And I know some students have sold clothing, some have actually sold their electronics and other things, um, but we're about 75% fully funded. So if you want to learn more about this trip or hear how you can support us either spiritually through prayer or financially, I have some friends at the community development uh, desk right outside of live here that would love to talk to you. And if anything, um, just give you some information so that you can be praying for us. As we begin, I want to ask you all a question, a very important question. What are you hungry for? What are you hungry for? I mean, be honest. Okay, I know right there when I asked you about what you were hungry for and mentioned the word hunger, some of your stomachs probably started rumbling a little bit. But I'm gonna hold you all right there. No, I'm not talking about what your stomach is currently craving. Think beyond your gut for a moment and try to think a little deeper. What is the single most thing that you and every other soul on this planet longs for? What has every person since the creation of time been in pursuit of? Well, in order to answer this question, let me tell you a quick story about myself. When I was in fifth grade, my gym teacher informed us that we'd all have to perform in something called the Presidential Fitness Challenge. This fitness challenge was started in 1966 by Lyndon B. Johnson as a way to motivate kids to stay in shape by having them perform a series of physical activities, such as the mile, the sit and reach, sit-ups, push-ups, and pull-ups, or in my case, the dreaded flex arm hang. Well, the presidential fitness challenge was good in theory, 
President Johnson's and, and educators alike failed to take one huge thing into consideration. They forgot to keep in mind awkward, uncoordinated, unathletic, and physically challenged preteens like myself. You see, instead of seeing this challenge as an opportunity to excel, I saw it yet as another chance for me to embarrass myself and to lose the acceptance and the approval of my fifth grade peers. Because I heard that I actually had to perform these things in front of everybody else. You see, I wasn't so concerned about the mile because we were told that we could walk for all of it or some of it, and I figured I could walk, walk the mile and that would be good. And I wasn't so concerned about the sit and reach because at that time, my arms uh, were freakishly long while my legs were freakishly short. And I know not much has changed, but here's a fun fact. When I was in eighth grade, I was the tallest kid in my class and then I didn't grow another inch. And I wasn't so concerned about having to do uh, push-ups or sit-ups because I estimated I could at least do five and then call it a day. No, I was in absolute horror and disarray because I knew that I cannot perform a single pull-up and that there was no way for me to pretend that I could. You see, not being able to do a pull-up and having to do a, the flex arm hang instead in fifth grade was considered to be social treason, treason because it showed others that I was a wuss and that I was weak. And so my entire fifth grade reputation was about to be ruined, all because I couldn't perform a single pull-up in the presidential fitness challenge. It was a Friday, and I remember leaving school in the car that day feeling defeated. But thankfully, all that changed that night, or so I thought, as I headed to a sleepover at my best friend's house. And then it happened. My current problem finally had a solution. It was as if the gates of heaven finally opened up and I could hear angels singing when Ferris Bueller's Day Off appeared on the TV screen. <laughs> now, if you're not too familiar with that movie, it's about a high school student named Ferris who pretends to be sick in order to have a much needed day off with his friends in Chicago. But within the first five minutes of this movie, Ferris teaches his viewers how they can lie and pretend to be sick to their parents so that they can get out of school too. So naturally, as a fifth grader, I took Ferris's advice. When the day came for us to be uh, tested for pull-ups, I lied and pretended to be sick to my parents. And here's how I did it. I actually licked my palms and my hands. Yes, I know that this sounds childish, but let me tell you, it gave my mom the impression that my hands were sweaty and clammy. But then I also very carefully took my thermometer and put it underneath my lamp to give my mom and dad the impression that I had a fever. I seriously must have given an Oscar-worthy performance that day because my parents at that time actually bought it. It actually didn't work another time, true story. But it got me out of school and it worked. But unfortunately, it, this only temporarily solved my problem. You see, eventually I was forced to admit to myself and others about who I truly was and what I wasn't capable of doing. We all have situations like this. We all have flex arm hang moments, if you will, where we find ourselves pretending and performing in order to gain the acceptance or the approval of others. And sometimes we even do this in our relationship with God. We do this because we're afraid to admit who we truly are, what we have done and what we cannot do. But we all do these things because we all desire one thing, and that's acceptance. Yes, acceptance. 
It's what every one of us and every single person who has ever lived desires. It's actually what humanity craves. But with this ultimate truth comes the ultimate problem and question. How do we achieve acceptance? And how are we supposed to live in light of our acceptance? Well, thankfully today, we're gonna be looking at a simple story told by Jesus that shows us what a lifestyle of acceptance looks like in the kingdom. Will you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your simple gospel. Lord Jesus, I'm just so grateful that the gospel is so simple that the youngest child or person can understand it, but yet it is so profound and so incredible that the oldest person, regardless of how many years they have known you, could never possibly fully understand or imagine the depths of your mercy and love that you have for them. And God, while this story we're looking at is short and small, I pray, God, that the implications that it would have on our lives would be huge. Lord Jesus, be with us as we look at your word. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn them to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. Again, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. For the last few weeks, we have been in our Tales of the Kingdom series, in which we have been taking a look at the parables of Jesus. These stories of Jesus are revolutionary for those of us who are trying to live a life in the kingdom because they change everything that we know and have been told by the world. For example, the world says that the key to greatness is by being first, whereas the kingdom says that the key to greatness is by being last and a servant to all. Today, as we take a look at this short story, we actually should not be surprised to have our understanding of acceptance be drastically changed and turned upside down. Let's take a listen to this story. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down upon everybody else, Jesus told this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In these verses, we read that Jesus was telling a story to a group of people, probably the Pharisees, who were so confident of their right standing with God that they actually were looking down upon everybody else. So Jesus tells this story. And he goes on to describe two men who went to the temple that couldn't have had more contrasting backgrounds. The first was a Pharisee. And to most of us Christians today, when we hear their name uttered, we actually cringe a little bit because of the, some of the harsh words that Jesus said about them. But to the average Jew at this time, the Pharisees were actually considered to be the trendsetters of their faith. And here's why. The Pharisees actually banded together in the first place because they were generally concerned about the decline of commitment 
and understanding that their fellow Jews had in relation to God's law. The Pharisees devoted themselves to actually keeping the law as a way to help restore the righteousness and the godliness of their land and people. So naturally, devout Jews of Jesus' day would consider the Pharisee to be an outstanding person or the heroes of this story. They would have been the kind of people that a church today would love to hire on their church staff. A Pharisee would be the type of person that a church today would love to have on their church board. And for you and I as Christians, a Pharisee would be the type of person that we'd just love to say that we were friends with or met just because we rubbed our shoulders with them in everyday life. So it's no wonder that this Pharisee was feeling pretty spiritually good about himself. If his position and status in society were not enough, he also tithed prayed, and fasted more than what was expected of him. And he certainly didn't act like other sinful people. He was a religious all-star. Then there's that other person Jesus described, the tax collector, a no-good, money-grubbing, cheating Roman collaborator, as most of the people of that day would have called him. And here's why. You see, tax collectors were actually Jews empowered by the Roman government. And so these Jewish uh, tax collectors would go out and collect a certain quota of taxes from their fellow Jews. But in order to sweeten the deal, the Roman government gave these Jewish tax collectors permission to keep any and all excess money that they collected for taxes, and they were able to line their pockets with it. So if you can imagine, tax collectors were not loved, but they were hated. So Jesus tells us that, the, that this man stood at a distance, almost as if where he belonged. If they had buses in those days, he would have socially belonged in the back of the bus. He certainly didn't bring up front with the good people and those who had it spiritually together. Well, that's at least what the Jewish people would have thought. It's actually hard for us to imagine a greater contrast. If Jesus were to tell us this story today, he'd probably compare Billy Graham to Charles Manson or Mother Teresa to Adolf Hitler. Or because we live in Wisconsin, he would have compared a player from the Green Bay Packers to that of the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> but after making this comparison, Jesus concludes his story by giving a judgment about these two men at the temple that would have left his original hearers in complete shock. It would have left them in surprise. He says, I tell you the truth, that this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. I don't think Jesus told a story that had a more surprise ending than this. I believe that deep down inside that this Pharisee was actually hoping to head home as feeling like he was accepted and justified that day. But despite his best effort, we read it was actually the tax collector who went home justified. This word literally means to be accepted in the eyes of God. But if you're like me and you just hear a story like this, you probably still have a lot of lingering questions. Like, what does this parable even mean? And how does it apply to our everyday lives? Well, I believe that the answer to these questions is actually found in the posture and the position that we see in the heart of this particular tax collector. Look back to the tax collector's prayer for a moment. Even though this is actually one of the shortest prayers ever recorded in the New Testament, it actually reflects the entire heartbeat of the gospel. And it explains how a person is, is accepted in the eyes of God and into the kingdom. Pay attention to three things that this tax collector, as told by Jesus, was aware of. Firstly, this tax collector 
was aware of who he was dealing with as he entered the temple. He beat his chest and would not only look up, would not look up to heaven because he realized that he was standing in the midst and the presence of a most holy and perfect God. Actually, the posture of the tax collector reflects that of Moses. And then later, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, when, of which when both of these men actually stood in the actual presence of God, they couldn't and they didn't look up, but rather they fell down on their faces because they were awestruck by God's sheer holiness and perfection. Secondly, this tax collector was aware of who he truly was on the inside. He knew that he was a wretched sinner standing in the presence of a most holy God. Specifically, when the tax collector is referring to himself in this story in his prayer, the best translation of what he actually said was, God have mercy on me, the sinner. In other words, the tax collector couldn't make excuses for his sin. He didn't try to pretend or, or perform to appease his guilt or to get out of God's judgment. Instead, he actually took personal ownership for his sin and allowed his sin to break his heart because he knew that his sin had broken God's heart. The tax collector knew that his sin actually stood bare in the presence of this holy God that he was praying to. Lastly, this tax collector was completely aware of what he needed, God's mercy and grace. He was completely aware that his acceptance did not come from what he could do, but solely it came from what God could do for him through his mercy. In our modern translations, the tax collector says, be merciful to me. But in the original Hebrew, this phrase is best translated as saying, be mercy seated to me. You see, the mercy seat was actually the outstretched wings of angels, which was found on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And this mercy seat actually served as the lid to the sacred box. Between these outstretched wings, the people of Israel actually believed that God himself dwelled on the mercy seat. And as it stood there in the temple, the Ark of the Covenant was considered to be a picture of God's judgment towards them in light of them as a people being aware of his holiness, but also of them being aware of their own sinfulness. So as God looked down from heaven, he saw through the outstretched wings of the mercy seat and saw how the laws of Moses had been broken. As a result, God knew that he had to deal with his people's sin. But by God's grace, here's where mercy comes into play. Once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of an unblemished and perfect animal over this mercy seat. The perfect animal was a substitute. It was an innocent victim dying in the place of sinful people who deserved to die. So now when God looked down from heaven between the outstretched wings of these angels on his holy ark, he no longer saw that the 10 commandments were broken by his people, but instead he now saw the blood of an innocent victim. He now saw that the punishment for sin had been met. And as a result, God's love went out in mercy to save all those who came to him through faith in that sacrifice. This story is beautiful and profound at the same time. It's beautiful, beautiful because even though Je Jesus told this story in light of the old sacrificial system that allowed the people of Israel to gain God's acceptance, Jesus actually told this story as a way to foreshadow his new and future sacrificial system on the cross that would give all humanity, you and I, the opportunity to be accepted into the kingdom.
But this story is also profound because in it, Jesus shows us how we are supposed to live in light of being accepted into his kingdom. This story is actually an invitation to allow his sacrifice to transform our hearts so that we can live out a mercy-seated life. What should a life that's been accepted into the kingdom look like? Well, I believe that God's mercy invites us to grow and to live out in these three ways. Firstly, God's mercy requires us to grow in humility. How do you see yourself? I think that this is a really important question, whether you know Jesus or not. But if you do know Jesus, I think a better question in light of Luke chapter 18 is how should we see ourselves? The world tells us that we should believe and trust in ourselves to find balance and right standing because after all, we're perfect the way we are, right? Unfortunately, this type of thinking is prideful and dangerous. It's dangerous because it encourages us to have an inflated view and belief in ourselves. From reading the Bible, we see that the way of the kingdom and living in it requires humility. Humility in the kingdom requires us to have a right and healthy view of ourselves in light of us having a right and healthy view of God. In other words, it requires you and I to have correct spiritual vision. Consider mirrors for a moment. Have you guys ever gone, uh, cl- you know, shopping for clothes? I'm going to stop you right there. I'm the type of person that when I want to go shopping, I want to get in and out, and I actually try to get out in less than like a couple minutes because I hate shopping. But have you ever gone shopping for a pair of pants or a shirt, and you went into the fitting room, and you looked into the mirror there, and you're like, man, I look really good in this shirt. But then you go home, and you put on the shirt again, and you look in the mirror, and you have to like do a double take, and you're like, man, why do I look so bad in this? Why did I buy this shirt in the first place? Well, that's because a lot of fitting rooms use convex, convex mirrors in them, because they make things look smaller and better than they really are. This is a type from here that the world advocates that we look into in order to see past our imperfections and our inabilities to fix ourselves. This is actually the type of spiritual mirror that the Pharisee was looking into. Then there are plain mirrors, and there's no hiding in a plain mirror, let me tell you. These mirrors reflect images and things in their normal and true proportions. They show and reflect what's really in front of them. This is the type of mirror that the gospel actually invites us to look into. And this is the type of spiritual mirror that caused a tax collector to go home justified. In other words, our initial acceptance and entrance into the kingdom of God requires that a person has a correct awareness of the spiritual gap that exists between them and God. And this gap initially causes us to trust and believe in the work and the person of Jesus Christ instead of ourselves. This is what we call the gospel. But here's the deal. The gospel doesn't just end there. The gospel is not just the doorway to our salvation. The gospel is actually the pathway for us to live out our salvation. Because a life centered on Jesus requires us to grow in our spiritual humility. It requires you and I to grow in awareness of God's holiness, but also us to grow in our awareness of our own sinfulness. It's not that God becomes more holy or that we become more sinful, but instead it means that we're given an increasing spiritual awareness of our own spiritual imperfections 
so that we can increasingly cling to the perfection of Jesus Christ that we have on the cross. This is what the tax collector had in this story. That is why he went to the temple that day. He had spiritual humility, which allowed him to have an ongoing awareness of who he was in light of God. Mercy-seated living invites and encourages us to live the same way. Secondly, God's mercy calls us to live in the power in light of grace. Once we have a correct spiritual awareness of who God is and who we are, we'll realize that we cannot help but live and depend on the power of grace. Because we cannot live our Christian lives, the supernatural life, the natural. We simply do not have the strength or power to do so. The only way that we can possibly live the Christian life is by allowing Christ's life to live through us. In order to illustrate what this looks like, uh, I'm going to use a glove. Um, I'm sorry for those of you in the first row if it smells bad, but I've been using this glove a lot. Um, But for the sake of this illustration, I know it's going to sound really simple, but bear with me here. Let's pretend this glove is us as Christians. And let's pretend, I mean, this glove, right, is made out of leather, it has Velcro, um, and it's been stitched together pretty well. Um, it was, it's made to do work and to help lift and carry objects. So let's pretend I say to this glove, hey, glove, pick up and carry this Bible. But minutes later, still nothing happens. The glove isn't doing the work that I'm asking it to do. All right, so then I put my thinking cap on, as most youth pastors do. And maybe I say to myself, okay, Maybe what this glove actually needs is some discipleship. It needs some one-on-one time. So I decide to spend a lot of time uh, with this glove in which I actually close the fingers of the glove with hopes that it's going to learn how to do the work that it was created to do. But still, after spending hours and all this time with it, nothing happens. Okay, so maybe what this glove needs is to actually have fellowship with other gloves. Maybe it needs to spend time in life group or outside of church um, with these other gloves to learn from other gloves what it's like to actually be a glove that's able to carry and lift up this Bible. Or the youth pastor in me, what this glove really needs is to go to a retreat or a conference. This glove needs to recommit itself and learn what it truly means to be a glove that can pick up the Bible. It needs to rebaptize itself, right? And they're already to get onto it. Well, I could go on, but for the sake of embarrassing myself, I will not. But I'm hopefully behind now. You guys are getting the point. But if not, let me try to explain it to you. Even though this glove was designed and created for work, it cannot do the work unless a living hand fills every part of it and does its work through the glove. Friends, we were never created to try to live the Christian life on our own strength and power, but rather we're called to be dependent solely on the power of God's grace. The Pharisee in this story was like this useless glove because he was trying to live his faith and he was trying to achieve God's acceptance through his own power and strength. Whereas the tax collector in this this story received God's approval because he was solely dependent upon the power of God's grace to fill his heart and his life. I believe that the implications of this are endless because God's grace is, is endless and it closes all of our spiritual gaps. But here are just a few implications from the story. Okay, 
be honest. Have you ever done anything in your Christian faith out of obligation? Have you ever tithe? Have you ever read your Bible? Were you ever nice to somebody that you didn't want to be nice to? Have you ever came to church, maybe you're here today, not because you wanted to, but because you felt like you had to? This is how the Pharisee lived his life constantly. And unfortunately, that's how many of us as Christians live our lives today. But a life centered on Jesus not only has the correct spiritual vision, is not only increasingly aware of the gap that exists between them and God's holiness, but a life that is aware of this gap can no longer try to live out their Christian faith half-heartedly because they realize how big God's grace is and how his grace has covered that gap. But when a life is filled with the power of God's grace, they live out the life that God wants to, not because they have to, but because they generally want to out of gratitude and appreciation. It's only the power of God's grace that enables a Christian to love God with all their heart, mind, and soul. Also, a life filled with the power of grace frequently finds themselves in the lifestyle and pattern of repentance and faith. Martin Luther once said that the entire, uh, entire sum of Christianity could be come down to those two things, repentance and faith. And here's why. Even if you already know Jesus, we are still prone to wander and to want to go our own way. And as Christians, we're still, we're still prone to try to fill our lives with our effort or other things rather than the power and the grace of Jesus. Actually, this is what the Bible calls sin. And even though we're constantly missing the mark and start going in the wrong direction, typically on a daily basis, if we know Jesus, we're actually not condemned or pushed away. No, instead, the voice and grace invites us to allow Jesus to come in again and to fill our lives up with his grace like this glove. This is what repentance and faith looks like. In fact, this is why the tax collector in Jesus' story, I believe, went to the temple. He wanted God's mercy and grace to fill him up again. This is what the tax collector was doing and this is what Jesus calls us to do as well. Also, a life filled with the power of grace naturally shows grace to others. So I'm a big fan of documentaries, and recently um, I've been enamored with ESPN's 30 for 30. Now, I love it because I love sports, and in these certain documentaries by ESPN, they, they interview teams uh, or they highlight players or certain social issues going on in the world of sports. And recently, I came across one uh, called um, Everyone Hates Christian Leitner. And if you're not familiar with Christian Leitner, he was a star player for the Duke, uh, Duke uh, championship team, basketball team. And um, this whole uh, documentary interviewed teammates, coaches, and opposing players about why they hated Christian Leitner, not only as a player, but also as a person. As a player, a lot of opposing teammates hated him because he played dirty. But the real reason why a lot of even his teammates hated Christian Leitner was because he was so cocky and prideful on the court, but definitely off it. And upon watching this, I'm like, I was like, come on, how bad could this guy be? I mean, he played for my team, the Minnesota Timberwolves. So I did some investigating, and I, I found this really incredible story about him. 
Because he was so accustomed to winning and saw himself as a winner, he felt horrible playing for uh, the Timberwolves his first couple years in the NBA because that team was awful. And apparently, after losing a game by a lot of points and not feeling like his teammates put enough effort after this particular game, they were all sitting in a circle, and he did this. He pointed at his teammates and said, loser, 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 winner. We laugh at this story, but I tell you it because a life filled with the power of grace cannot and does not look at others the same way. A life filled with the power of grace cannot, ha- cannot help but extend grace to others who are still searching to fill their lives up with something. So a life that has been filled with grace, instead of pointing at other people that don't know God and say, sinner, 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 saint, they actually have this to say. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was once blind, but now I can see because the grace of Jesus has filled and freed me. You see, all saints have a past and all sinners have a future. And both are desperately in need of being filled with God's grace. Amen. Lastly, God's mercy calls us to live in freedom. Does anybody like Halloween out there? Yes, I feel a little weird being 34, admitting that I still like Halloween. And yes, I know that it has negative connotations surrounding its practice and origin. But honestly, what's so bad about eating copious amounts of candy, but then as a parent, stealing more candy from your kid? All right, I just described gluttony and dishonesty. (laughs) But regardless, I like Halloween a lot because it actually takes me back to when I was in high school. And when I was struggling to find my identity and purpose, and I was struggling to discover who I truly was. And here's why. Specifically, I can recall one Halloween in which I made a brief appearance at a costume party for all but 15 minutes. And here's why I was only there for 15 minutes. I went to this costume party, but I was the only one there not wearing a mask or a costume. So I left and I went home and went to bed early. But that night, I had this crazy dream that I was back at this party. And this time, I still wasn't wearing a costume or a mask. But somehow or another in this dream, I made my way into the bathroom. And when I looked into the mirror, to my surprise, I had a mask on. And you all, it's not, it wasn't just any mask. It was the ugliest mask that I had seen in my entire life. It was so uh, ugly and so scary that I actually woke up in fear and almost called for my mom. It's actually incredible that I still remember this dream because I'm the type of person that never remembers them. But actually, this particular dream has stayed with me my entire life, and here's why. It stayed with me because it constantly reminds me of how prone I am to wear a mask The scarier thing is, it reminds me of how prone I am to not even realize I'm wearing a mask. I think that there's a deeper reason for why why Halloween is a $7 billion industry in the United States. It's because people love to wear masks and they like to pretend to be somebody that they're not. This is because everyone wants to fit in. But have you ever thought 
why you want to fit in. Have you ever thought why everybody else in this world wants to fit in? The reason we all crave acceptance, approval, and significance is because God himself designed us to find and desire these things. One of the most important words in the story that we just heard, but also the Bible speaks about, has to do with this concept of belonging. It's called righteousness. This word is actually found in almost every book of the New Testament. And righteousness basically means to be accepted or to have a right standing. But the world tells us that the only way a person can be accepted and have right standing is if they choose to live their life on a treadmill of pretending or performing. Meaning that a person can only be accepted or considered to arrive unless they achieve the standards that this world and society sets in place. Whether that's achieving the American dream, driving a certain car, getting accepted into a certain school, being able to retire at a certain age, voting for a certain political candidate, or giving people the impression that you or your family have it all together, this is the treadmill of the world, pretending and performing. Because of this, that's actually our natural posture to live our lives. According to the world, it's a lot easier to wear a mask than to be honest about who we really are. Unfortunately, the Bible is clear that whatever gives a person their sense of worth or belonging is actually their, their source of righteousness. So let me ask you this question. What gives you your sense of acceptance and right standing? Is it Jesus or is it your pretending or your performing? Wouldn't it be crazy if people walked around all the time with masks like this? Like my daughter Zoe would love to be able to do that. We actually had to set limits on her of how much she could wear this mask. But realistically speaking, as much as I love Star Wars and especially Chewbacca, Wearing this thing constantly would be horrible, and here's why. It would be hot, it would be irritating, it'd be uncomfortable, but then when I looked in the mirror or I interacted with others, I think it would be really hard for other people to take myself seriously if I was constantly wearing this, but also myself seriously too. But unfortunately, this is how life for many people, even us as Christians, is like when we resort to wearing the mask of pretending and performing like the Pharisee did in the story. But the good news of the gospel, you guys, is that the gospel invites us to take off our masks of pretending and performing and to trust in the righteousness of Jesus for our acceptance. The tax collector did this, while the Pharisee did not. The good news of the gospel is that we do not have to trust in our own performance to be accepted. The good news of the gospel is that we don't have to pretend to be better than we really are. The good news of the gospel invites us to freely trust in the perfect performance of Christ by freely admitting that we spiritually do not have it all together. The mercy seat of the kingdom invites us to freely come before Jesus just as we are with no masks so that he can freely shower us with his acceptance and righteousness. Amen. In closing, I want to ask us all some questions. Firstly, what would your world be like if you were living a mercy-seated life? 
One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about recently is my tendency, as I talked about, to want to wear a mask. And sometimes, if you come to church, it's a lot easier to wear a mask. But actually, church should be the first place where we feel like we can be exactly who we are. And one of the things I know that it's really hard for us to do is during the greeting time, when somebody asks you, how are you doing? Our typical response is good when life is not doing good. Church, we need to give each other permission to not pretend that we have it all together. I can't help but think of of students who come through my door on a weekly or monthly basis who are so stressed out and they're so tired of not being able to achieve the standards of this world through their performance. Parents and church, we cannot find our acceptance through our performance and nor should we put that sort of pressure on our kids. But think about what the implications have on the world. What would the world look like if we live mercy-seated lives as Christians? I recently heard it said before that the greatest cause of atheism today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but deny him with their actions. If, we're tr- if we try to live our life on a treadmill, if we as Christians are living life with a mask pretending and performing, I can tell you right now that the people around us will not want anything to do with that. It's been challenging me a lot recently in regards to what type of neighbor I am to those in my new neighborhood. The mercy, the kingdom life, you all, is a mercy-seated life. And that's the type of life that Jesus in this story calls us to. Will you please pray with me? Dear Jesus, I just thank you so much for the story that you told. Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much that our acceptance into the kingdom is not dependent upon our performing or our pretending. Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much that the gospel is a call for every single person to take off their masks and to come before your throne just as they are so that you can restore us and show us how to live. And so Lord Jesus, may we all come to you with that posture today and may we leave this place in light of your mercy and live mercy-seated lives so the rest of the world can accept it as well. In your precious and holy name, amen.